And when you look from all those different perspectives, you see Homo sapiens evolved to be what scientists would call promiscuous or multi-male, multi-female mating species. And this to me is quite clear from the evidence. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to facilitate your mental and physical well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that human beings are basically tribal animals and we're meant to live tribally in small groups. When we do so, we tend to be very cooperative and collaborative animals. We like to do things together. We like to create things together. And we really love to eat together, sitting around in circles. But we do must remind ourselves that although 95% of us are these friendly tribal animals, there are a small percentage, maybe less than 5%, who are very different. These people are predators, they're dominators, and they are the people who, out history, have wanted the rest of us to be subjects and not citizens. But we changed that with our American Revolution when we overthrew the King of England, George, and perhaps the Pope, because they were united, and the kings ruled by divine providence. If you went against the king, you went against God. And so the people were subjects. We overthrew that, and we became citizens, and we've been experimenting being citizens for over a hundred years. We must remain aware and mindful that a democracy and a republic is a fragile experiment, and there are those who would take it over and get us to be subjects once again. We must stay aware, my friends. In the words of my hero, or one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. With us today is a man who is being eternally vigilant on another topic. Christopher Ryan comes to us with his book, which I have here, Sex at Dawn. Christopher is going to be talking to us about his questioning, his questioning a cultural tradition of heterosexual monogamy. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Chris. Thank you. It's great to be here. Chris, am I correct that you are questioning the concept of normative heterosexual monogamy as a sustainable way of people living together? Uh, mostly. I, I'm not really questioning whether it's sustainable or appropriate in the modern world. I'm I'm more questioning the normative aspect of, of what you said there. Um, you know, I think that the, I look at monogamy the way I look at vegetarianism, which is that, uh, I think it, it, you know, it's arguably a very good way to live one's life. It can be very healthy. It can be ethically superior, um, to being an omnivore. 
Uh, there are a lot of reasons that people could choose to be vegetarians, and I respect and honor those reasons. Um, so where I come into it is saying simply that our ancestors were not vegetarians. We didn't evolve as uh, an, an herbivore. And so if you choose to live that way, which is a viable option, it's a, it's a viable choice, uh, don't expect it to be easy because it isn't the way our ancestors lived. Um, you know, the, the sort of joke I often use is just because you've decided to be a vegetarian doesn't mean bacon stops smelling good, right? So um, I, I don't, there's no judgment. There's no, there's no um, advocacy in sex at dawn. No, we're not, we didn't say, you know, monogamy is doomed and, and it's a false approach to, to relationships. We're simply saying it's very difficult uh, because of the way we evolved as a species. And that understanding of what kind of species we are should be baked into your relationship model. When you say it's difficult, are you basing that on the fact that 50% or more of the marriages in the United States end in divorce? Or are you <laughs> saying it's, are you saying it's difficult for more intrinsic reasons having to do with the nature of humanity. Yeah, I, I think the latter. It, I mean, the, the divorce rate is certainly a contributing bit of evidence uh, supporting that thesis. But I think that the real meat of the matter for me is looking at our bodies, looking at closely related primates, looking at uh, our, our sexual behavior uh, currently, looking at anthropological data from societies that aren't dealing with the, the sort of edifice of shame um, uh, that we deal with in Judeo-Christian societies. And when you look from all those different perspectives, you see Homo sapiens is uh, a species that evolved to be what, what scientists would call promiscuous or multi-male, multi-female mating species. <clears throat> and this to me is quite clear from the evidence. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, pornography is one of the biggest industries in the world for a reason, right? We're fascinated by sexuality and the idea that we are uh, by nature a monogamous, monogamously mating primate flies in the face of all the evidence, and it would also make us the only group living primate that is monogamous. It's just unheard of in the primatological literature. Well, okay. Let's make believe we're in a courtroom, and you're going to make the case anthropologically, sociologically, perhaps economically, you're going to make the case for why monogamy is not the best solution as a way of living together and collaborating and making a decent life. I may challenge you. I may agree with you. Uh -huh. But it's your job to make the case. As you have in your book, Sex at Dawn, which I have here for everyone to see, it's a must read, a must read. If you're a thinking person, you really want to consider what Christopher Ryan is saying here in the book. And now we will hear 
in the courtroom of mind, body, health, and politics, he <laughs> makes his case. <laughs> okay, well, w- with one modification, I, I want to say that if I am making this case, it's for it's in the context of hunter-gatherer bands, which is how our species live for 99.5% of our existence, um, depending how you when you decide we became Homo sapiens. But we've existed as anatomically modern Homo sapiens for about 300,000 years. That's the most recent estimate. And agriculture didn't arrive on the scene until at most about 10,000 years ago. So it's a very small fraction of our time as a species has been in settled communities with hierarchical political systems and um, men having much higher status than women. All this stuff is very, very recent in our existence as a species. So to make this case, I'd make the case not for now, again, because I'm not, I'm not passing any judgments on monogamy. My parents were monogamously married for 54 years until my father died. And I'm, in, I'm endlessly grateful to them for, for the fact that they stuck together and that they loved each other and, and gave me a very stable upbringing. So I don't ever want to be interpreted to be um, criticizing monogamy per se. All I'm saying is we need to understand what kind of species Homo sapiens is so that if you choose to be monogamous, understand the challenges you'll be facing. Don't expect it to be easy. And also, I think my ultimate goal is that people have more compassion for themselves and for each other um, by understanding how difficult this could be because it goes against our nature as a species. So you know, to, it would take a long time to really lay out the whole case, but. That's all right. We've, we've got plenty of time. (laughs) I want to hear, I want to hear the whole case. (laughs) Well, I I want people to buy the book, you know, I can't give it to them for free. Come on. Well, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, no, I'm, I'm joking. Of course. Um, I, you know, there, there are, as I said, there are four major, uh, sort of sources of of information. So let's start with anthropology. If you look at hunter-gatherer bands that live presumably the way our ancestors did, and, and there are complicated reasons that we can make this presumption about the similarities between contemporary hunter-gatherers in the Amazon or in the Kalahari Desert or in um, Australia or, or Papua New Guinea or wherever, um, and the way our, our ancestors lived. Um, but if if we take that as a given and we look at hunter-gatherers, we find that this idea that uh, women were looking for a man who would be a protector and provider, and men are looking to spread their genes as far and wide as possible, which is sort of the central struggle of the so-called war between the sexes, which a lot of modern theorists have us going from Darwin to, you know, Steven Pinker and Richard Dawkins, they would have us believe this is our nature, that men and women will always be at war because we have opposing reproductive agendas, right? But this is based upon several false premises. One is 
that people understand that sex causes pregnancy. It turns out many hunter-gatherer groups around the world don't know that sex causes pregnancy. And if you think of it, there's no reason they necessarily would. People are having sex. Women are getting pregnant. Where's the connection, right? Like they, some societies believe that if a woman steps over a smoky fire, she'll get pregnant. Um, a lot of hunter-gatherer groups believe that uh, a baby is a sort of a reincarnated spirit of an elder who has died recently. And so her pregnancy is actually triggered by the death of an elder. Uh, many societies believe in something that anthropologists call partable paternity, which means that they believe that a fetus is literally made of accumulated semen. And so a woman who wants to have a child who is funny and smart and athletic will make sure she has sex with the funny guy and the smart guy and the athletic guy so that their essence will all be included in her child. And these men all believe that they are the fathers of this child. So <clears throat> the idea that men are monitoring women's sexual behavior to assure their paternity, which is, as I said, central to this standard narrative of human sexual evolution, turns out it doesn't make any sense at all because people don't have these assumptions about sex causing pregnancy that we assume they do. Furthermore, on an economic level, a sort of corollary to this standard theory is that women, as I mentioned earlier, are looking for a man who will be a provider. But when you actually look at how hunter-gatherers deal with economics, um, anthropologists refer to them as fiercely egalitarian, meaning food is shared, uh, defense is shared, access to all resources is shared fiercely egalitarian. In other words, if you are found to be hoarding food and not sharing and stingy, that's one of the worst things <clears throat> that you can do in these societies. It's a, it's an incredibly offensive uh, behavior. So it's very severely punished. Um, and children from infancy are taught to share, share, share. That's how we survived as a species, by cooperating and sharing resources. So, Chris, yeah. make the connection for me between the hunter-gatherers, a woman who might want sperm from a funny guy, a smart guy, and an athletic guy in order to create that kind of being, make the connection between that and a modern woman who might be thinking, I need a guy with a bunch of money who's big and strong is going to protect me. And so I'm going to be careful and choosing that guy. And I'm going to live with that guy and that guy only because he's got the things that I'm looking for to take care of me and my baby. She's not thinking about the woman in the hunter gatherer tribe who has no idea that semen uh, impregnates an egg and creates a baby. She's a modern woman who knows damn well the semen one time creates the baby. So make that connection for us. 
Well, it, the connection is is mitigated by culture, right? This is a woman, the modern woman that you're you're positing, uh, has thousands of years of uh, severe punishment for being sexually open and relaxed uh, in her consciousness, right? Uh, you know, w women who got pregnant outside of marriage were basically finished, uh, you know, stoned to death in some areas, some areas they still are, even if they were raped, right? It's obviously not her fault, but she's become worthless because she, she was raped. Um, you know, th these are brutal assumptions about men possessing women, but the research that, that we did in Sex at Dawn makes it very clear that this uh, idea of men possessing women is something that's that's post-agricultural. This is not built into human nature. Um, and when you talk about what modern women are looking for, of course, a woman who has had no access, no direct access to resources for millennia has to go through men, right? This is why the father walks the woman down the aisle and hands her to the husband. She's property. She's the father's property until she's married, and then she's the husband's property. We still enact these rituals. Um, but in hunter-gatherer societies, there's none of this. Women have direct access to resources, so they don't need the man to provide for them and their children. And to the extent that men do the hunting and provide the bulk of the meat to the society, that meat is shared equitably, uh, so, regardless so saying, of who her partner is. So you're saying it's only in the, uh, the last 10,000 years of our 300,000 year existence that women have become chattel. Right. Yeah, if you read the Old Testament, um, you know, one of the passages that's very well known is uh, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Right. If you read that in context, you know, I when I I hear that phrase before I really looked into it, I just thought that was saying respect your neighbor's marriage. Right. Like, don't don't get into shenanigans with your neighbor's wife. But if you read it in context, you see this is about property. The, the context is thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his house, nor his slave, nor his ass, his, you know, his animals, his domesticated animals. So really what that is saying is don't covet thy neighbor's possessions. And his wife is one of those possessions, right? Or wives, as there were multiple wives in the Old Testament. Um, so yes, this idea of men controlling women in order to assure paternity is not built into human nature as everyone from Darwin to Richard Dawkins would have us believe. It's actually an artifact of agriculture. Um, and so the woman that you're talking about who's choosing a mate and says, well, I want a guy who's got a good job. Well, of course she does in this society, because if she's not getting those resources from the man, who's going to take care of her? In American society, nobody's going to take care of her. But if you go to a place like Denmark or Sweden or Finland, where there's a much stronger social safety net, where the state uh, helps single mothers with child care and education and medical assistance and all that kind of stuff, you find that women are much less focused on the man's potential to provide for them.
So it's very much an adaptation to an economic situation. And furthermore, you can, if you really want to look at the sort of, um, instinctive or evolved tendencies, it's interesting that women who are ovulating, um, sort of judge men differently than when they're not ovulating. So there's lots of research showing that when a woman's not ovulating, she's more attracted to a sort of Hugh Grant kind of character who's, you know, funny and charming and has uh, lots of resources and all that business. But when she's ovulating, she's more attracted to like a strong jaw and wide shoulders and physical indications of genetic vigor. So even within the same woman, where she is in her menstrual cycle can change um, how what kinds of men she's attracted to. You're saying that knowing that she's fertile is a major contributing variable to the type of mate that she chooses. Yeah, although not necessarily knowing it. Uh, there are, you know, innate behavioral instinctive programming that, that comes into effect. I'm, I'm not saying she looks at her calendar and says, oh, now I'm attracted to this, right? Yeah, it's the same thing with, and there's a fascinating study done by um, Claude Vedekind in Switzerland uh, where he wanted to understand why women's sense of smell is so much stronger than men's. Why, why they, why did they evolve that? Right. And um, he, I think he'd heard some women speaking about a man and, and, and one of them said, well, he's really, he's funny and he's charming and I, he's a really nice guy, but I, just the way he smells isn't right for me, you know? And he thought, wow, that's interesting. I don't hear men say that very often, right? Like if, if, if a man's attracted to a woman, you know, her smell doesn't seem to be a huge issue. Anyway, he, he had, I think 15 or 20. It's been a while since I read the research, but it's mentioned in Sex at Dawn, but he had a, a group of men wear t-shirt, the same t-shirt for three days and nights, no soap, no deodorant, no shower and he chose women who had uh, a deficit in one factor of their immune response. So it's called major histocompatibility. And um, for the sake of simplifying the argument, it's as if we have five factors, five immune responses to five different classes of pathogens. And so he chose women who were low in A, or low in B, or low in C, or low in D. And his hypothesis was that they would be attracted to men who were high in that particular immunological response so that their baby would be likely to survive, more likely to survive. So, And he hypothesized that women were picking up this information about men's immune systems through smell. So he had the men put the T-shirts in Ziploc bags, and then he had women <clears throat> smell the T-shirts and rate how attractive they thought the men were without ever having met them, never seeing them, no photograph, nothing, right? And what he found was that a very high percentage, 80 to 90% of the women were choosing exactly the right man to compensate for her immunological deficiency, right? So 
totally subconscious that nobody's aware of any of this, but she just is attracted to this man because on some level her, her body knows this man's body is strong where she's weak. And so the two of them together will make healthier babies. Now this has nothing to do with resources, right? She doesn't know what job he has. She doesn't know what he looks like. She doesn't know how old he is. She doesn't know anything other than how he smells. Um, and interestingly, he found, you know, 15 or so percent of the women were choosing wrong, but, but totally randomly. And so he reran the test and then he went back and questioned the women and he found that the women who were choosing wrong or randomly were on birth control. So their bodies thought they were already pregnant. They were on the pill. And that short-circuited this instinctive uh, selectivity that women have if they're not on the pill. So it's fascinating. And, and God knows how many relationship issues this has led to for people who got together when the woman was on the pill. And then later they decide to have a kid and she goes off the pill and gets pregnant. And maybe the kid is not as healthy as, you know, one would hope because their immunological systems aren't really adapted to one another. And then she finds the man totally unattractive and no one really knows why. And it's just because they short circuited this filter that's built into our bodies. Um, you know, I, I was talking about this on a radio show and the host said, my God, that happened to me. Now you just explained my first marriage. <laughs> well, you know, I'm picturing a new dating app where people make their selections olfactorily. Yeah. Uh, the women just sit in a room and there are bags full of T-shirts and that's how they select their males. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, th those things do exist. There are uh, pheromone parties, you know, where, where people get together based on their pheromones. The problem with that is all it tells you is that you're likely to have healthy offspring. It doesn't tell you anything about living together or sense of humor or if you both like travel or Mozart or anything like that. All it tells you is that biological component. But how does this fascinating experiment, I love it when my colleagues come up with these experiments. I've indulged in a few myself in my time. Uh, <laughs> I, one, one time I, I invented a chair whose legs sat in metal tubes. So when you fidgeted in the chair, the leg of the chair made contact with the metal tube and set off a meter so you could measure how often the person fidgeted in the chair. We, we called it a, 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 a fidgetometer. <laughs> <laughs> and now, is so, this to encourage or discourage fidgeting? Well, it was to find out how much students fidgeted when they were given certain information about what was going to come in the next room with regard to testing or education or various scenarios. Mm. So we were matching the giving of the information prior to walking into the classroom with the fidgets. I gotcha. <laughs> yeah. 
But let's take let's get back now to what we're describing as a kind of natural inherent selection, if you will. Let's bring that back to monogamy versus other forms of cohabiting, such as omnigamy. Right. Well, omnigamy, uh, meaning uh, that people had different ongoing sexual relationships with several different uh, adults at at any given time, appears to be our natural uh, mating system uh, when not controlled by other factors like economics or religion or, you know, different uh, sort of cultural overlays. And omnigamy makes perfect sense in a hunter-gatherer group where everything else is being shared, right? Um, Sarah Hurdy, who's a great uh, anthropologist and primatologist, has written extensively about parenting in hunter-gatherer groups. Um, One of her books is called Mothers and Others, and she gets into um, the fact that children are considered to belong to the group, or not even to belong to anyone in a possessive sense, but children are the responsibility and the joy of the group. They're not uh, exclusive to one mother or one father or one couple. So if a child, you know, hurts him or herself, whatever adult is nearest will go over and, and help. It's not, they won't say, hey, your kid over here hurt itself. You know, there's none of that sort of exclusivity around children. And typically in hunter-gatherer groups, women will breastfeed uh, children who are hungry, regardless of whether that child is biologically hers or not. Um, and also it, it's, you know, the whole biological question becomes nuanced because hunter-gatherer groups are interrelated. They've lived with each other, you know, their whole lives, typically. Often the women will leave and join another band uh, when they reach sexual maturity, which is also common in, in chimpanzees and bonobos, our two closest primate relatives. Um, it's, it's known as female exogamy, meaning, you know, to stop, to reduce inbreeding when, uh, children reach sexual maturity, the female leaves and goes and joins another group, but a group nearby. So it's not, you know, they're, they're not going hundreds of miles away. Um, so they, so they are all sort of related, uh, in any case. And it makes perfect sense in a society, as I said earlier, where everything from food to protection to to access to all resources is shared. Why would we not share our affection and our sexual pleasure with one another? Well, Uh, what you seem to be making the case, if I understand you, please correct me if I'm off. You're making a case that 290,000 years of behavior and of evolution have put material down into the hard drive that is affecting the last 10,000 years. And although we are no longer hunter-gatherers and we are in this massive experiment with 
monogamous heterosexual coupling, you're saying that the 290,000 years is the substrate that we bring to this modern way of life. And that's why it ain't working. (laughs) You're saying it better than I would. Yes, yes. Well, again, I mean, it works for some people, but it is an uphill climb. And Well, and that's I, very generous of you to say it works for some people. It's 50% end in divorce. Now, <clears throat> Christopher, how many things in your life would you be willing to take on if there was a 50-50 chance of loss? Like, would you get in a car if you knew there was a 50-50 chance of having an accident? I don't think I would. Would you get on a plane? I don't think I would. I want better odds. You know, <laughs> I, I really do. 50-50. Yeah. Would I invest my money in a deal that I had a 50-50 chance of losing all my money? And yet, we are investing in what you're pointing out to us as a 290,000-year history of being different than what we're trying to what we're experimenting with. Like, we're at the table, we're playing a losing game, and we keep knocking our heads against the wall and wondering why we're doing this and spending a fortune on couples counseling, try to figure out what the hell's wrong here. And you're saying, yeah, it's not that there's something wrong, it's that you're going against 290,000 years of hardwiring. Right. Right. And it's no different from, you know, something as simple as diet or exercise, right? If you want to understand the healthiest diet, look at what our ancestors ate. If you want to understand the the healthiest uh, activity rate, look at hunter-gatherers. They walk a lot, right? Uh, we are designed, our bodies and our consciousness is designed by time. It, you know, it's it's like a a river of the a river path. It, it, it evolves. It's it erodes, and and the more time that's gone by, the deeper the the riverbed gets. And you're right. We're trying to go up against the current of our evolved nature, and it's a very hard thing to do. And all I want to do is bring attention to the reality of the situation, so that people, you know. People, the thing that motivates me to write both of my books, Sex at Dawn, uh, which I wrote with Casilda Jetta and and Civilized to Death, which I wrote about nine years later, both are motivated by a desire to uh, help people avoid unnecessary suffering. And I feel like a lot of people are suffering because they think that there's if they're attracted to someone other than their partner, then there's something wrong with them or something wrong with their partner or something wrong with their marriage. And all I want people to understand is no, it's because you're a human being that's totally built into the cake. That's baked into the cake of being a human being. You're going to be attracted to lots of people, just like you like to listen to lots of different kinds of music, right? We don't say, Oh, Beethoven's the best. I'm going to listen to nothing but Beethoven for the rest of my life. And if I feel like listening to the Rolling Stones, that means I'm a I'm a failed human being. Like that doesn't make sense. We're curious, we're intelligent, we're highly social. And 
sexuality. I mean, you know, if I were going to make this case in court, as, as you suggested earlier, one of the first things I would mention to the jury is that we are one of a very few mammals that has sex for non-reproductive purposes. Every other mammal only has sex when the female is ovulating. That's the only time. Because otherwise, it's a waste of effort and it's dangerous. Yes, bonobos, humans, chimpanzees, dolphins are the only mammals that have sex for non-reproductive purposes. No, we're, 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 as I said, we're, we're one of a very small handful. Um, and so there's a reason for this. This isn't a, an evolutionary accident. We have sex when uh, the female's already pregnant. We have sex when she's beyond menopause. We have sex in way oral sex and anal sex and all, all kinds of sex that can't possibly result in pregnancy. That's vanishingly rare among mammals. And the only mammals for whom this is the case, ourselves, bonobos, chimpanzees, and dolphins, are all highly intelligent, highly social mammals. So sexuality has been co-opted to fulfill other functions beyond pure reproduction. That's very obvious. And, and any biologist will tell you that's very, very unusual. So, you know, in the court of opinion, I feel like it's kind of funny that, you know, I'm in the position of trying to make the case that monogamy is not natural when I really think someone else should be, uh, told to make the case that monogamy is natural because if you understand the data, it's it's a very shaky case. The more you make the case that monogamy is not natural, the more annoyed I'm getting. In fact, in fact, I'm getting very annoyed at this interview, and it's maybe the first interview in 20 years that I've gotten so annoyed. Mm. Because you say that you're writing these books to help people, uh, because they're involved with something that is going against 290,000 years of history. And I'm listening to you, and I see that you published your book in 2010, and that's 14 years ago. And I want to know, why the hell didn't you come on my program 14 years ago when I was 71 and I could have changed my habits? And now I'm now I'm now I'm 85 years old and I'm in a monogamous relationship and I'm and I'm and I'm learning that I'm going against 290,000 years of history and, and I'm and I'm stuck at 85. It's a hell of a time to be learning this. Where were you 14 years ago when the book came out? Darn it. <laughs> I was around, believe me. I, God, I was, Char, where is my producer, Charlie? Why didn't you, Why didn't you get? It's too late. You can't go back in time. But I should have had Chris on this program fourteen years ago. Well, you know, maybe there's a there's a time for monogamy. Maybe maybe in your eighties <laughs> is a good time. Easy for him. Yeah, the time when you're eighty five years old. Uh, maybe that's the time, huh? <laughs> And I'm sure you, I'm sure you have a lovely partner and, uh, you know, 
It's not a matter of that. I do have a lovely partner, but what you're pointing out so persuasively, verbally, and in your book is that we're going against our genetic makeup. We're going against our DNA. We're swimming up a river. We're trying to dam a river. We're trying to block nature. And that's misguided. It is pure and simply misguided. And no wonder we're failing. And no wonder the divorce rate is, 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 is 50%. And the question I have for you, knowing this, Christopher, what do we do about it now? Is there, is there an opportunity for massive cultural change? And if so, what do we do? Is the answer what's being called polyamory or omnigamy? Do we bind together in little tribes? Do people who live in apartment buildings suddenly start getting together with other people on the same floor rather than going down the elevator and never <laughs> saying hello to each other for 10 or 15 years in a row and standing there in silence? Do they suddenly start clumping together and raising <laughs> children together? What do we do? Yeah, I, clumping together doesn't sound very romantic, does it? <laughs> well, maybe Let's... maybe maybe it's a poor choice of words. <laughs> would you would you would you prefer mushing? <laughs> uh, swarming, maybe. Swarming, okay. <laughs> I'll go with that. It sounds yeah. a little bit like bees. <laughs> Well, you know, I think the the first step toward any social change is is understanding. So uh, I, I think there's a lot more understanding now and acceptance of uh, ethical non-monogamy. Uh, and I think that's a step in the right direction. People yeah, every, are everything about it is a step in the right direction, except the nomenclature. I abhor, yeah. I abhor defining anything in terms of what it's not. Yeah, yeah. Non, Non-monogamy. That doesn't tell me what it is. It just tells me what it's not. Right. Right, right? You can tell me 30 ways not to cross the street in Manhattan, and I still don't know where the hell to cross. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, and, and, and it's something that bothers me as well, because people talk about uh, polyamory, as if it's the only alternative to monogamy, right? They sort of clump everything together as, as non-monogamy. So it must be this. Whereas, as you say, there, are, there's a whole spectrum of ways to be non-monogamous. Um, so, you know, you probably remember if you're in your eighties, you remember the swing in seventies, uh, you know, the, the Playboy mansion and, uh, Gay Talese's book, Thy Neighbor's Wife, which, you know, that was sort of a sexual liberation movement uh, where swinging became uh, quite popular in the U.S. That's a way of being non-monogamous uh, that's very different from polyamory. But, um, but at, the, at, the, at the foundation of what we're discussing, Chris, alternatives to monogamy are really much bigger than about sex. It's about ways of collaborating and cooperating and living together, of which sex is one component. People right. so often get misled. They hear polyamory and they say, oh, that just means a bunch of people want to fuck each other. No, it's not necessarily that, although I'm sure that's part of it. 
but it's also about how do we live together and make a sustainable life? How do we educate ourselves? How do we make a living? How do we share, as you pointed out, the meat that when the gatherer goes out and brings back? How do we share it rather than have what we presently have, which is a situation in which a few have so much and the great masses more and more have so little? Yeah, I'm really glad that you raised that because you're right. That is a central issue that often gets lost in discussion of, you know, testicle size and, you know, genital design and sperm, you know, issues that like, uh, there's a lot of technical evidence for this argument um, that I think really misses the point, which is that this isn't really about sex. This is that our species long ago co-opted sex as a way of establishing and maintaining cooperative, intimate social groups. That's what's really important. It was a component along with sharing food and helping raise each other's kids and sharing access to resources. It was just one part of a comprehensive, egalitarian, cooperative way of interacting, which is really the thing our species does better than any other species. We are highly cooperative and compassionate. And the great tragedy of humanity, in my opinion, is that this cooperation and shared intimacy got off track somewhere around agriculture where we became a dominator, male-driven, hierarchical, top-down uh, species, much more like an ant colony than a bonobo troop. Um, and we've just gone off track and we suffer from that. We suffer the stress. We suffer from the 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 lack of, of movement. We suffer from the lack of connection. More people live alone than ever in the history of our species right now. Right. I mean, this is crazy. What is the, you know, the worst uh, punishment we can give to the worst criminal is solitary. Yeah. Ostracism. Put them alone. Make them be alone. Right. Right. That's that's so against our nature. So you're right. It's not about sex. It's about how do we raise children? How do we take care of each other as we age? All those issues where. Unfortunately, in in American society, especially, it's all monetized and institutionalized, and and you know, children and and the the elders are both abandoned. Um, Chris, and so, Chris, yeah, I I think you and I agree on the diagnosis. We may have to have another interview to discuss the treatment plan, because the diagnosis without a treatment plan is nowhere. And what's the treatment plan? <laughs> and I'm going I, to pivot now uh-huh. and, and, and ask you something else because of the depth of your knowledge base and your wisdom. In this 290,000-year period and this 10,000-year period, what the hell is the story on killing each other? Where did that come from? How is it? that these animals called human beings, whether it was in the 290,000 time of hunter-gatherers or the post-agricultural time of this last 10,000 years, from whence cometh 
killing. Well, I Without argue. It, oh, let me let me answer. Add one thing. Yeah. From from whence cometh killing without eating? Yeah. Um, my understanding of the advent of organized warfare between human groups is that it's a consequence of agriculture, and this is, uh, you know, there are chapters about this in both Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death. Um, and my understanding is sort of directly 180 degrees from what Steven Pinker argues in a couple of his books, um, where he argues that hunter gatherers were always highly violent and aggressive, and uh, it's actually gotten better. I go the other way. I, I see no evidence that hunter gatherers were violent with each other. And I see every bit of evidence points to it being an agricultural, a post-agricultural um, institution. So in other words, what you're saying is once lines got drawn, lines between people, between tribes, the line saying, this is mine and that's yours, demarcation, once yeah. that's drawn and I own this property, this woman, this hunk of meat, then I will kill you to either protect it or get yours. Right. The The main difference between hunter-gatherers and agriculturalists or horticulturalists is the presence or absence of accumulated resources. So hunter-gatherers, if you go to Tanzania now and hang out with the Hadza, they don't have anything. They don't have any grain stored or dried meat that they're going to use to get through the winter or they go out in the morning and hunt and they eat what they get. And that's, that's how they live day after day. So if there's no accumulated resources, what is it you're going to be fighting about? What is it? Why would you attack an armed group of people who are very good with their bows and arrows and spears? Why would you attack them if there's nothing to gain. There, there, there's, there's nothing there. There's no food. There's no gold. There's no anything. So you can attack them for their women. Yeah, but you can also just women can go where they want to go. And there are enough women for everybody. You know, you'd, you women aren't a resource. You need to feed the women. You need to feed the children. So there's sort of a natural homeostasis. Well, except uh, that so, so, some of our colleagues have made the argument that polygamy uh, results in a lack of resources because if one guy has 30 women, they're going to be 29 guys with no women, and that's sure. going to lead to violence. Sure. But again, that's in a post-agricultural world. That's in a, in a world where you've got armies and you've got wealth, accumulated wealth, and you've got men at different status. Uh, Hunter-gatherers, everyone's got the same amount of wealth, which is virtually none. Uh, in terms of material possessions. So if you look at hunter-gatherer societies, you see very, very little uh, organized violence between groups, primarily because there just is no, there's no reason to do it. And there's lots of reason not to. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, and you can look at sort of uh, circumstantial evidence as well, right? If we evolve to be, killers of one another 
why do we suffer from PTSD when we see someone suffer, when we see uh, soldiers coming back from war who have seen destruction and, and death? Why do, why do they suffer the rest of their lives if this is a natural part of human existence? It clearly I, can, I, 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 I think I have an answer for that. Well, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a good one. <laughs> I, I said it at the beginning in my introduction to this program. 95% or more of us human beings are friendly, cooperative animals that just want to get along and hang out together and eat yeah. and raise children. But there's a 5% or less group that are very different. And I don't know that they suffer from PTSD. I never heard of a hitman suffering from PTSD. I never heard of an assassin yeah. suffering from P And I've treated them. I have treated people who are killers. And, and they don't suffer in the same way when they kill somebody. And so that could be the answer, that, that we're dealing with this small, very powerful group within our group who behave so differently that they are disrupting the entire planet. And you could argue that in our society, psychopaths um, thrive. Uh, they they find themselves in positions of great status and power because of the incentive structure of Western society. So as I'm sure you know, there you know more psychopaths per capita on Wall Street and in politics, you know, and in Fortune 500, the top of Fortune 500 companies, than in the general population. We know that. We've heard tape recordings of them sitting in rooms laughing about the people that they've stolen their life savings from, literally laughing as they're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, and we have, you know, a presidential candidate who says that people who serve their country are suckers. And somehow, you know, that's acceptable. That um, same presidential candidate said of John McCain who spent six years in captivity, that he was a loser because real people don't get captured. Yeah. It's yeah. outrageous. It's outrageous. I mean, that's another whole topic for us. Where are you right now? Where, where are you sitting in the country or the world? I'm in a very strange little town in Colorado called Crestone, uh, which is a couple thousand people. It's the only place in North America that has a permit to conduct open air cremations. So if you live in this town and, and you die, you can be cremated out in the desert. Uh, I'm at 8,000 feet. There are about a dozen spiritual centers here, uh, Tibetan Buddhist and uh, Shinto from Japan and uh, Zen Buddhist from all over the world, different uh, spiritual centers. And people come here to do retreats in the mountains. And this is where you live full time? Yeah. I'm sitting at, Will, at the health sanctuary that I created in 1972 at Wilbur Hot Springs, about two hours north of San Francisco. I'm going to give you a quick picture of where I'm sitting. That's beautiful. Yeah. Wow. N nature in the raw. Was there a big fire there a few years ago? I lost all my bedrooms to a fire, massive fire in yeah. 2013. Right. One year later, 
we opened up again with everything rebuilt and we haven't looked back. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been to Wilbur Hot Springs uh, before the fire. I, I was there a few times. It's a beautiful, oh. beautiful area. Uh, I, I, this Crestone sounds like a very special place. Yeah, it is. There are a lot of hot springs here, actually, in this area. Um, yeah, it's you. I think you and I probably have some friends in common as well. I I looked at your uh, archives and several people that you've had on your podcast. I've had on mine several times. Uh, Dennis McKenna and Charles Grobe. I'm very interested in psychedelics. I spent a long time in that world. Sasha Shulgin and um, all these yeah. are friends of mine. Stan Groff. Uh, yeah. You have a podcast? Yeah. Yeah. I've been doing it for about 12 years. Well, I have th three books out on psychedelic medicine. Another one coming out this year, Psychedelic Medicine at the End of Life. Mm. And another one coming out after that called Psychedelic Medicine Adverse Effects. I'd be honored to uh, be interviewed by you on your program. Yeah, we should do that. Do you know Stanley Krippner? Well, I haven't seen him in 100 years. I didn't even know if he's still alive. He is. He was my uh, PhD advisor at Saybrook. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Stanley and I have traveled all over the world together. We've, we did really? ayahuasca in Brazil and visited um, Lascaux, the, the prehistoric art. Uh, in the cave in France. Uh, we've been to India together. Yeah, Stanley's wow. a, a dear friend of mine. So how do you make a living in Crestone, Colorado? <laughs> uh, I write, uh, you know, I, I got the two books out, as I mentioned, and I write on Substack and I do my podcast. And like I said, I've been doing this podcast, you know, since the days when nobody knew what a podcast was. So I was very fortunate to sort of build up an audience back in the day, and they've stuck with me over the years. So uh, I make a modest income from the podcast and my Substack writing. Well, that's good. I know you're not making a living off books because I've got four in print and more coming, and I don't say money is not something you can live yeah. on. You know that you know that as well yeah. as I. By the way, my latest book is connected to your book, Sex at Dawn. It came out a few weeks ago. It's called Freeing Sexuality. You might take a little gander at it. it. Out. Yeah, but but it's a very it's a very different uh, kind of book than yours. I, I really love your book, Sex at Dawn. Here it is again, folks. We're coming to the end of our time. Christopher Ryan, thank you so much for being here today. I, I, I really think we should consider a second interview unless you want to reverse it and interview me on your uh, we program. Can, we can do both. This has been, we'll, we'll just keep like ping pong, just knocking it back and forth till we get. Okay, it's a deal. You, you scared me when you said this was the most annoying interview you've done in 20 years. I, I thought we were done there. <laughs> Well, <laughs> that was a kind of setup. I like being, I'm sort of an imp and I, I speak, I, I, I speak that way at times when I'm going to say something really, really positive, but it sounds a little scary right. at first. Now, now I, now I know how to take <laughs> so, it. <laughs> that's right. Christopher Ryan, sex at dawn. Thank you for today. And thank you, gentle listeners, for being with us again on this broadcast 
of mind, body, health, and politics. Remember, we come out with a new program every Tuesday morning at nine o'clock. And as Chris said, you want to check us out on Substack or Facebook, Instagram, uh, YouTube, all the social media platforms. Subscribe and participate in our tribe. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.